0: Relativity, social media, and calm controversy. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm in a hotel room in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It must be tour time. (laughs) Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. As I mentioned, it's going to be a weird one. I'm traveling, kind of tired. Hopefully, it'll come out okay. I'll know as soon as you do, so let's get it started. I want to start this week by covering some of the events that are happening soon, because there are a ton of them. As I record this tonight, we uh, did the One Wildlife Tour in Albuquerque, and it was a blast. Before this show airs, we'll do a show in San Diego, although from my temporal vantage point, it hasn't happened yet. Monday, the day this show comes out, will be in Tucson, Arizona. Thursday, Santa Cruz, California. Friday, Los Angeles, California. Saturday, Santa Barbara, California, and then Sunday, will be in San Francisco, California. All those dates are with Gungor's One Wildlife Tour. It's a wild evening. Tom Crouch comes and opens the show with some songs, and then we do some science. I talk about uh, the universe in terms of numbers interspersed with music from Gungor's One Wildlife album, Spirit and Soul. It's an amazing event, lots of fun. We do a liturgist Q&A afterwards. We'd love to see you at one of those events. And then on April 8th, I'll be doing the Liminal Conference with Pete Enns. So it's me and Pete Enns for a three-day event in Ventura, California. Really excited about that event. I've actually heard several people are flying in for that event buying tickets. So don't miss that if you're anywhere near Ventura, California. I'm looking forward to it just to hear Pete Enns. I mean, the guy is an amazing voice. And how to read the Bible in a way that is helpful and and helps build your faith rather than tear it down. Then, really exciting for me, April 29th and 30th, we're doing the first Liturgist Gathering. This is an expanded version of Belong that's a lot less expensive. Tickets are on sale now. You can go to liturgist.com slash gathering to get more information. Or for all these events, just go to asksciencemike.com and click on the events button. The gathering, we're trying to do everything people have asked for. We're going to more cities, more often, a lot lower ticket price. It's a day and a half event. So we'll start Friday evening with some music from Gunger, some explorations of what consciousness is, some guided meditations. And then all day Saturday, we'll really talk about what it means to approach the Christian faith today at all. Uh, in an age of skepticism and doubt and looking at things through the lenses of science, art, and faith. I would love to see you there. Tickets are $99. It's absolutely as bargain basement as we could pull it off. We want to make the tickets just as cheap as they can be. And it is not a one-evening event. It is basically a small conference. It's a day and a half. Um, So I'd love to see you there. There are still tickets available in significant quantities. You're not going to have any trouble if you go ahead and buy your ticket right now, getting into the literature's Gathering, and there may be surprise guests. Basically, if we sell enough tickets, we're going to bring in some other folks as well. If not, then it'll just be me and Michael and Lisa. So, uh, which could be worse, you know? I don't know if you've heard these Gunger folks, but uh, they're pretty fun to be around. Uh, and I've got a lot more events that I'll tell you about every week on the show. May is really packed, and and we're booking out the rest of the year. Uh, so I'd love to see you at an event. There has never been more chances to see me in person.
1: Hi, Mike. This is Seth from Mobile, Alabama. When people encounter opposing viewpoints, most people get defensive and will argue, and they're not receptive to what you have to say. You've mentioned the role of the amygdala in all of this. It seems like in this political atmosphere that our amygdalas have doubled in size. However, I've known people that were particularly gifted in opening minds and creating understanding. So what is the scientifically best way to avoid the activation of the amygdala when talking about religion and politics with people of opposing views?
0: Tonight, uh, as we were performing the One Wildlife set, I was looking on Twitter and watching as protesters kind of took over a Donald Trump rally and watching people's reactions. Some people were very excited. Some people were very grieved. And this was irrespective of, whether or not they supported Donald Trump. Let's be honest, it probably won't surprise anyone. There aren't a lot of Donald Trump supporters on my Twitter feed. (laughs) It's just, that's not a big part of my audience. And we are not in a situation right now where calm during conflict or confrontation is normal. Calm during controversy is certainly not. Now, let me be clear, sometimes making a fuss is worthwhile, Martin Luther King made a fuss in America about inequality. And don't take my answer as a prescription for how people should address controversy, especially not how oppressed or marginalized people should handle controversy. Uh, Sometimes anger is the correct response. Sometimes the only way to create necessary social change is through dramatic actions like protests. Okay, so no one listen to this answer and hear me tone policing or anything like that. What I'm talking about is in one-on-one discussions where you are trying to genuinely influence someone's views. And in that case, there are some science-based approaches that I have found particularly effective. Do you really have a chance to change their mind? Is it worth the effort? A stranger in a restaurant uh, may not be the the best target for, uh, you know, whatever position you're trying to advance. But from there, the first thing that's important in keeping someone's amygdala from starting up, again, if people get angry, they don't learn, they're not considering positions, it's purely a defensive reaction as stated in the question. So that's why I'm trying to avoid anger in these discussions. Uh, one is to show empathy for the person, to show that you understand their feelings, their frustrations, their anger. And that's on any issue. My conservative friends today are very angry. My liberal friends are very angry. Both feel that their anger is justified. I'm not judging whether their anger is justified or not. When I'm going to have a conversation with someone, I do my best to understand their position fully and show empathy for how I can understand their feelings from their reference frame, from their perspective, from their position. And second, I affirm the relationship. I make it clear that the conflict we're having doesn't call into question my respect for them or the value I place in the relationship. Since we're social animals, we tend to get a little panicky if it looks like our relationships are fraying. So if I noticed someone is starting to get angry, or feel threatened. Uh, I take the time to address that. And for a really significant conversation, I'm going to assume we might have to have more than one. And sometimes the most important thing in that moment is simply to reaffirm the relationship and move on, drop drop the topic. As you are able to keep someone's amygdala from responding and stay calm, uh, you want to honor their identity. Humans have a psychological need to self-identify as good people. And if you call into question someone's identity as a good person, they are going to become defensive if they have any kind of functional psychological makeup. So you never want to attack someone's identity. Instead you want to confront specific issues while affirming goodness. I am a white man who talks about white supremacy. And I don't do this to make a career out of it. I don't do this to, to take the platform or voice from people of color as much as possible. If you, if you look at my work, you'll see I work very hard at amplifying the voices of people of color on topics of racism and other topics using you know, my societal advantages as a straight white male. Unfortunately, <laughs> straight white ma- males today are disproportionately able to address issues of inequality and injustice, and I think that's important. But when I talk about white supremacy, uh, most people who are involved in the kind of systemic supremacy that America exhibits today, aren't aware of it. They don't view themselves as racist. They would never say a racist thing. And in their hearts, they don't believe there's any difference between people of different races. They are simply unaware of the way, in many ways, the cards are stacked against people of color in America. And so, When I talk about white supremacy, I am careful to affirm their goodness, to say that I understand and I know that they care for people of color and that they view them as equal. And what I'm talking about is how we can have our actions match those beliefs. And I usually do that from a perspective of my own failures, my own learnings, the things I figured out I am doing wrong. I almost always tell the story of white supremacy from my perspective as a person who has benefited from it and who has learned from it. So I never, as much as possible, I'm sure someone would say, well, I saw on Twitter one time. Okay. <laughs> I make mistakes, but I try to never come from some position of moral superiority. The only reason I understand these issues to, to any degree is because People have patiently explained them to me, and so I just try to pay that forward. I try to patiently explain it to other people, and frankly, it's easier for me to do as someone who is not under an oppressive system. Based on societal conditioning, white people are more likely to listen to me because I'm a white person and therefore automatically safe. So you're going to pick your battles. You're going to show empathy. You'll affirm relationships, honor identity, and confront the issues while affirming the goodness of the person. Those are the best techniques I have off the top of my head. It's a uh, it's uh, much past one o'clock at this point. So I hope that answer was good. It was a little bit uh, <laughs> I'm going on stuff I've already looked up. I haven't I didn't even do a fresh uh, fresh Google on that one. So whoo, a little delirious. <laughs> Our next question came in from the email inbox and it reads: Hey Mike, first off, thanks for your work. I can't overstate the impact it's had on my spiritual life and worldview. My question is about relativity. On your most recent Liturgist podcast, you talked about disparities between two theoretical points of view and how it can cause the relative now to fluctuate where the viewpoint would be in our past and our future. I understand the past part, but my mind is having a hard time grasping How any theoretical viewpoint 10 billion light-years away could be viewing our future. If that were the case, it sure brings up questions of free will. Can you help me sort this out? I'm fascinated, thanks. Uh, And the question is from Clay. Well, let me catch everyone up with Clay for a second. In that episode, I was talking about space-time and relativity. And effectively, uh, two things can affect the flow of time in Einstein's theory of relativity. One is intense fields of gravity, and two is velocity. The closer you are to the speed of light, the slower you experience time. I explained that in great detail in a recent episode of Ask Science Mike about gravitational waves, so if you'd like to catch up, go check out that episode and then join us again. Now, what I found out in additional reading was that distance can amplify those effects. So if you have two theoretical positions, 10 billion light years apart, and you have a very minor difference in speed directly towards or directly away from the other point. It can cause relativistic fluctuations in the passage of time and can cause the synchronicity between those two viewpoints to shift by more than the span of human history. So you can imagine if point B was moving away from point A at, say, 500 miles per hour at relatively low speed, and then it stopped and shifted back and moved towards point A at 500 miles per hour. That could shift an incredible amount of time between those two points. And yes, that does call in ideas about free will and determinism, but there's an out. 10 billion light years is a long way. So for any information to be passed from point A to point B, it will take 10 billion light years, uh, at which point the fluctuation in the relative nows of those two moments will be greatly outpaced by the time it took the information to be transmitted, okay? That's it. That's what we're talking about. The other thing is 10 billion light years, you've got the inverse square law. That means the amount of information that's going to transfer to that distance is going to get dispersed anyway because the amount of light or photons that can carry information from point A to point B are going to get really spread out. So theoretically, yes, this does speak to the future and the past being eternal features of space-time, but that's in one model of cosmology. Remember, at a fundamental level, we know both the standard model of physics and uh, general relativity are incomplete. Special relativity as well. So theory of relativity and quantum dynamics are both incomplete. And I, attempts to replace them like string theory, superstring theory, uh, in brain theory, all these things are both known to be incomplete and lack uh, experimental verification. So we're talking about theories that are well-grounded but not completely fleshed out. So don't worry too much <laughs> about your free will, at least not in terms of relativity.
1: Hey Science Mike, it's Keith in Orlando. My question has to do with uh, some of your expertise in social media. Uh, I'm trying to get a better grip on how social media changes based on how you interact with it. Depending on what you like, what you share, uh, who you follow, the information that's delivered to you is customized just for you. For instance, if, if I see someone with a different political view and I unfollow them or if I click on their post and say, this offends me, similar posts are going to disappear and I'm only going to see stuff that is more in tune with how I already feel about the world. Um, how can this affect our uh, confirmation bias? How can this create a more polarizing situation? Um, particularly in the United States, uh, our, our politics today are, are just so polarized. Uh, do you think Facebook or or even Twitter, or some of the other social media programs have anything to do with that? And do you think it's going to uh, increase or decrease how polarized and and how much confirmation bias we experience in our lives uh, every day? Thanks, and uh, I look forward to your response.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a real thing. So what Facebook wants is for you to be on Facebook as much as possible, which means Facebook wants you to like your experience, which means Facebook tracks your behavior, to customize your experience so that you will enjoy it the most. Now, I don't know, some people like to fight on Facebook. <laughs> so I'm betting the algorithms. Um, uh, in fact, I would, I'm would. i quite certain that the fights on Facebook show up as comments and those are heavily weighted in the algorithm. Uh, so even if you're showing negative sentiment, the fact that you're commenting so much, you're actually training Facebook to show it to you more. But to the larger point that machine learning And social media can create basically an echo chamber. That's a valid criticism. That's a real idea. And uh, confirmation bias is unavoidable in humans. It's completely unavoidable. So you have to be kind of intentional to work against it. I am careful to frequently identify and curate high-quality, thoughtful voices in my life that disagree with me on significant issues. And to make sure that I manually search for their posts to make sure that uh, I like things even if I don't agree with them. I simply like them because of their thoughtfulness, which is also means you don't want to use my likes or favorites as an endorsement of thinking. <laughs> I use those literally to train machines how to show me information. But I also think it's okay to cut out the stuff that, that makes you unable to sleep at night makes your uh, amygdala fire up. We take social media really seriously. There are real problems in society, and we need to address those problems. But like getting worked up about Facebook and having trouble going to sleep doesn't solve the world's problems. So absolutely, absolutely a real problem, the social media echo chamber. And it's something I try to work against in my own experience. I, I actually enjoy the diversity that Ask Science Mike followers and the liturgist followers bring into my life. They're theologically diverse. They're relatively politically diverse. Let's be honest. They tend to be more centrist or slightly left of center maybe than most religious audiences. But uh, there's still a lot of people that are more conservative politically or more conservative theologically but are very thoughtful. So I would say the best way to work against the machine's tendency to show you things you don't want to see, is to curate high-quality voices that you disagree with. And that can be people, that can be publications, but then use those same tools to train the machines to check your thinking, to challenge your assumptions. I get really nostalgic. It seems to me in a real way that the quality of public discourse about politics has genuinely declined, and there's a tendency we're also biased to look at the past, uh, with favor. And so I've done a little research, uh, nothing that I would publish, but, but enough that I'm trying to not just make baseless assumptions. And it seems like the quality of our discourse is going down in this country that we used to have a more, you know, basically thoughtful discussion about the right way to govern. Everyone seemed to agree that we needed to figure out how to help people get a leg up economically. People seem to agree. We were all Americans and, Uh, We just disagreed on the specific approaches to bring forth a very similar vision. And today, politics does seem very tribal. Even people whose positions I agree with, I can find myself concerned with the vehemence of the echo chamber, the intensity of the echo chamber. So I agree it's an issue, and I think the only way to confront it is to start personally by intentionally, very intentionally, very frequently of finding opposing viewpoints and studying where they come from. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Science, my name is Tony and I'm from Eugene, Oregon. I have a question about your feelings towards Christian apologetics. I'm going through a very weird time in my Christian walk. I grew up a very strict fundamentalist and even worked as a youth pastor for a fundamentalist church. After stepping down as a pastor, I've gone through a reconstruction of my faith. One of the things, it seems, is uh, like several evangelical churches like to create a separation between faith and science, making you feel like you have to check your brain at the door to really fit in. I recently listened to your Searching for Sunday liturgist episode with Rachel Held Evans, and you guys seem to speak almost facetiously about the case for Christ. Now, it's been years since I read it, but I remember it being helpful and informative. So my question is, what are your thoughts on Christian apologetics? Are they helpful and substantial, or are they weak arguments made by evangelicals used to make them feel more secure in their faith? I really appreciate your show, and thank you for creating a venue where people like me can celebrate both science and faith and be okay with having doubts and tough questions. Man, Tony, thank you. That is a great question. I would say my relationship with Christian apologetics is complicated. (laughs) First of all, I think evangelical Christian apologetics helps many people feel closer to God genuinely, helps them lead more moral lives, helps them be a more positive force in society, and it also helps prop up really destructive theologies that harm people, create situations for spiritual abuse, and even cause Christians to believe things that perpetuate oppression for marginalized people groups. So it's a, it's a mixed bag for sure. Uh, I read The Case for Christ when I was younger, and it was helpful at the time. It also set me up for a fall. I sometimes wonder if I would have learned a less rigid form of Christian faith and practice if my faith would have ever fallen apart, if it might have been more ready to deal with and face head-on tough questions. About the character and nature of God, God's relationship to the Bible, the sorts of things I talk about all the time. Now, part of when you hear me speak almost facetiously, or Michael or or Rachel or any of us, uh, we're people, we're doing our best, our very best to be gracious hosts for a conversation. But we're people, we've got scars, we've got hurts. I've done a lot of of hard work to uh, recover from some traumatic experiences leaving evangelicalism. I'm not blaming anyone. Don't hear that wrong. I'm not casting fault at anyone except perhaps myself. But it was still one of the hardest experiences of my life to relatively quickly leave a community of people that I'd invested decades in. So sometimes that snark, that's just a psychological defense mechanism. It's also an attempt, believe it or not, to voice solidarity with other people who have experience some kind of similar hurt. Uh, But I I would never want anyone to feel minimized or hurt or mocked or made fun of by me using a tone like that. It's a very intentional thing for me to try to make as many people feel included and heard and valued as I possibly can. Now, it is impossible to do that with everyone, but it matters to me that as someone who even is, is very conservative evangelical could listen to this program and even if they don't agree with me could feel like I care for them, that I I believe that they want to achieve good in the world, that I believe that they really and genuinely love God. That is incredibly important to me. I got a little emotional. I might just be uh I might just be really tired. But in the end, I don't think a rational defense of the Christian faith is what it's all about. I'm a mystic. We meet God in experience and theology, scripture, practice is all about helping us move towards a direct experience with God. Now many, you know, evangelicals would say that our faith is not built on experience. I'm not talking about pure experience, by the way. I'm talking about an experience that then propels us to action and that is through Christian faith and practice. That's why we're Christians and not, you know, Buddhists or whatever. Not that I have any problem with people who are Buddhists or who are whatever. They're not specifically religious at all or not religious at all. But I believe God is something we know through love. By loving God, we come to a knowledge of God. But that is not a knowledge that we can put into words. I don't think apologetics does that. I think apologetics can help people frame their faith when it's first starting out. It can help them satisfy some intellectual curiosity But I think ultimately that scaffolding will get knocked down by circumstances, by hurt, by loss, or even by a careful examination of the scriptures. Uh, And that's why I tend to have kind of a a step back, a distant relationship with modern Christian apologetics. Uh, God is not something I care to prove. God is something that I love. And we've got a bonus question this week. It's a quick one from Paul. It says, Hey, Mike, what's the best way to pre order your book? Is there a seller that is better than another from your perspective? Did I miss the blog post about it being ready for pre order? Thanks for all you do. Can't wait. And I promise that wasn't rigged. <laughs> I absolutely. I promise you that question was not rigged, but I was delighted to see it in the email box. First of all, no, you did not miss a blog post. We're still really early in the pre-order process. We're really early in the bookmarking process. Believe me, in a couple of months, you'll probably be sick of hearing about my book. This is the big moment. This is going to be the test of the metal whether um, Science Mike is a thing I can keep doing you know, for a very, very long time, or whether it's just a good story, I'll tell five or six years from now. Uh, I've written this book. It's called Finding God in the Waves. And it's my story of faith lost and found. It's about my journey through atheism and then coming back to God and then how I put back together the pieces, how I came to have some Christian faith and practice uh, despite ongoing doubts, despite ongoing confusion about God's character and being committed to accepting scientific ideas about reality uh, the book is done it comes out september 13th of this year you can order it anywhere books are sold i know right now you can buy it at books a million you can buy it at barnes and noble and you can buy it on amazon all three have it up for pre-order there's no cover yet there's no copy if you go to those websites but we did launch the book website so if you go to You can pre-order the book there, and you can also drop me your email address. And we are going to have uh, some pre-order bonus content that's only available to listeners of Ask Science Mike or The Liturgist Podcast. Completely unique stuff just for you guys. That is a marketing trigger telling you that it's exclusive content, and I know that, but (laughs) it is also true that we are making things for you extra chapters that weren't included in the book, some other things that are going to be really cool that I'm excited to announce a little bit later in the spring or early in the summer. Uh, But in terms of where you order it, believe me, I'm thrilled if you order it anywhere. (laughs) I've actually been really surprised how many pre-orders there have been considering that on Amazon, there's literally just a picture that says cover coming soon. (laughs) It's heartwarming. Uh, how well you all uh, support my work man it's a weepy episode today I'm just like I'm, trying, <laughs> I'm starting to cry on every question and this one is like a book marketing question and I'm starting to cry but it's because I have so much gratitude for your support in this work so uh, findinggodinthewaves.com to learn more thank you so much Well, there you have another episode of Ask Science Mike. I want to thank a few folks this week. All you patrons on Patreon, a great job picking the questions this week. I thought they were exceptional. Uh, Thank you, Andrew Golucky, for picking the questions for the patrons to pick. Again, stellar work. Andrew, you are better at this than I ever was. Uh, Greg Nordine, I'm recording this uh, Saturday at 1.26 a.m., And Monday morning, you're going to have a show to listen to. And that's because Greg Nordine works so hard on this program. And so this week, I would appreciate it if you would uh, tweet Greg or Andrew and just tell them thank you. That would mean a lot to me personally, because they work really hard on the program. And of course, my boy Jeb, uh, (laughs) I love the Ask Science Mike theme song. He wrote it. And if you need music done, he can write music for you as well. I hope next week's show will be on time. It is really hard to record the show on tour because I am exhausted. Uh, but don't worry. I'm not asking for sympathy. I, you know, I don't need a bunch of tweets saying, oh, no, Mike, don't worry. I do the show because I know you've set aside time to listen, that I don't want to leave you stuck in your car scrambling for a podcast to listen to. I value this time probably more than you do the best thing about being on the road and doing all the events i've been doing is meeting you hearing your stories and finding out it's a miracle none of us are alone none of us are alone thank you so much and i'll see you next week